last Sabbath, I had the opportunity to go down to North Florida for the <clears throat> for the weekend down there. It was in Jacksonville on the Sabbath, and uh, then over uh, to the western part of the of the state there on on Sunday. And we had a fish fry and uh, really a, a enjoyable get together with the folks there with uh, Mr. under Mr. Brown's leadership, Mr. Joe Brown. And on the way down on on Friday, I was driving down and. Uh, turns out was had planned to stay in uh, down there in Jacksonville on on Friday evening, but uh, wasn't able to because of the circumstances, and so I had to make a, a change on that. And I'm driving down, and I'm thinking, okay, where are we going to stay uh, overnight, just en route here? And as I looked at the map, I realized that uh, Jekyll Island is on the way. Now, when I say Jekyll Island, some of you may be familiar with Jekyll Island. Maybe it brings back some the same memories as me. Probably not from the same perspective, because the last time, as I thought about it, as I was able to make a reservation, and and we, my daughter and I, who were uh, who were traveling down together, we went over, and we had about an hour before sunset, <clears throat> and we were walking on the beach on Jekyll Island. And looking at the sunset and a few people scattered on the beach. And I did the math. And the best I can tell, the last time I was in Jekyll Island there was was 50 years ago. Now, I, I don't feel old enough to say that, but that's what the numbers say. So I sent a selfie to of myself on the beach to my mother and said, guess where I am? Jekyll Island, Georgia. How many, I'm just curious, how many of you went to Jekyll Island for the feast back in those days? Okay. Thankfully, you didn't change my diapers because that was, that was uh, actually, I was probably seven or eight, but um, so nobody can say that, but uh, then you know what I'm talking about. It left, it was a, it was a really... A poignant memory to walk on the beach of Jekyll Island after after 50 years. Now, when you think about the feast, and that prompted me to think about what the feast is for so many of us, it's a unique opportunity that we have to to travel to different places, sometimes within our neck of the woods, sometimes much, much further. We can get in our car. And we can drive all the way down to Jekyll Island or maybe Big Sandy, but for those of you who are 50 plus years of, uh, of keeping the feast or all, a, a number of other places today. We can drive at or fly all over the place for the Feast of Tabernacles. And we can do it with an ease and speed that our great grandparents of only a hundred years ago would never even imagine. We might get on an airplane, as I said, and fly in hours a distance that would take weeks or even months for our grandparents or great-grandparents to travel. And every year we take that opportunity to travel for the Feast of Tabernacles in particular. And as we reach our destination and we begin to keep the feast, we'll meet people with different accents, uh, maybe even speaking different languages. And as we fellowship with our brethren, we're often struck by the fact that even though we live miles apart, we're connected. We're bound by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read of this really amazing description of the body and how our physical body is a, really is a template or a metaphor or a way to, to think about the body of Christ, the church. 
And we read here verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And it says, verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, rather the eye should say, um, I'm sorry, it is the ear. Verse 16, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole, hear, whole were the hearing, where would be the smelling? So we read very encouraging and comforting words that, that speaks to how we're bound together as a body. Now here's the best part. If you think about the feast and traveling to the feast, which we do every year, if we could travel back to the home church area of any one of our brethren that we'd meet, we'd see the same phenomena, wouldn't we? We'd see the same understanding of God's truth, of his calling, of his kingdom, of his laws and his ways, the messages that we would hear would be on the same themes. You wouldn't go to, for example, to their hall on the Sabbath and find no one there because they keep Sunday. Or you wouldn't go out to eat with a family after after services and see the dad order pork chops. You wouldn't see things that would be in contrast with what we see here. Because God's spirit of understanding, God's spirit of truth would be there. And this is the common bond that we have with our brethren around the world and also back through time, if you think about it. But if you could stay there, if if you could live with those brethren beyond just that one Sabbath that you went back with them after the feast, if you could stay longer, one week, two weeks, three weeks, a month or two months, you can stay longer, spend time with them, get to know them. Beyond the basic similarities, you might just notice differences. Now, you might, certainly, you notice cultural differences, um, speaking differences, perhaps. But I'm, I'm talking about something of the Spirit. We read in, in the book of Acts of Paul's travels throughout Asia. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And you see, for example, Acts chapter 16, we read that Paul traveled throughout different places. I'm just going to give a couple examples. Verse 1, then he came to Derbe and and Lystra. We see verse 1, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. If you flip forward to just the next chapter, you see here uh, other places that he visited, chapter 17 and verse 1. When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there's a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom went, went into them. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So we find just an example, and, and, and we see the same thing in the next chapter, where he went from departed from Athens, and then he went to Corinth. And he, he traveled through diff, to different places, seeing different congregations, and experiencing different the different cultural uh, differences of the different peoples and uh, and different certain different attributes of the different churches. Now, if you could travel back through time to the time of, of Paul, say, for example, to the time of the New Testament times, what would it be like? 
I mean, not just to travel, not just to go and look around, but, but to experience the atmosphere, as Paul did when he spent more than just a few days, more than just a church visit for a Sabbath, but he actually spent weeks, months, sometimes years in particular places. What, what would you experience? What would it be like? What would be the spirit of any given congregation that you'd visited? So what I'd like to do today is to, is to analyze that question. We're going to take a look through the window of the scriptures. And what I'd like to do is see from the scriptures how different congregations each reflected from what we read about them, a certain different atmosphere, a different spirit, and then apply that concept to us today and, and see what we can learn from that. Because there's a, a, a message in this, in this lesson that I, I think we can, we can draw out. So the title will be simply this. What is the spirit of our congregation? Because you can see where I'm going with this. This will reflect on us personally as, as well. So first analysis. Let's go to Romans. And let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, again, remember, we're reading about Paul here. And this was written from Corinth, as we understand. We read Paul's comments on the church at Rome. Paul, a bondservant, verse 1, of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So there's the introduction. And then he says, verse 7, he says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So we see that Paul mentions this characteristic that the church at Rome was known for. So if you were to spend time at the church at Rome and you were to talk with people, interact with people, what would you experience? What's what's one way you would describe the church at Rome? Well, here's how Paul describes it as a church that is faithful, that is dedicated. We see as he goes through the uh, the first part of the, or continuing through the first chapter here, that they were they were warm and they were hospitable. They were loved by Paul. For God is my witness, verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and, and me. So there's this, this attribute, there's this element of, of faith that encouraged him when he heard about them, when he met with them, when he fellowshiped with them. That was an element that was, that was reflected in, in the congregation. And it was noteworthy enough that he said, this is spoken of everywhere I go. Now, there's something more, though. Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Romans chapter 2. Therefore, we begin verse 1, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Oh, this doesn't sound so positive, does it? This is, this is a 
bit more of a critique, isn't it? But he says, verse uh, verse 1, For you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Whoa, these are strong words, aren't they? So, what's the spirit of that congregation? What, what's the atmosphere in that congregation? If you were to go there and you were to spend time with those people, with, with your brethren in that congregation, what would it be like? What questions would you be asked as you walked into that group of people, that, that fellowship? Uh, what cliques would be happening there? What undercurrents would be flowing? Who would be avoiding whom? Um, who couldn't wait to leave after services because they didn't feel welcome? Or and, and then at the same time, we find there are elements of faithfulness there. And so this is the thing, is when we read about the different churches, and we're going to look at a few examples as we, as we analyze them and try to, try to think what it would be like to be in among them, it's not all bad or all good. It's, it's real life, isn't it? It's a mixture of, of positive attributes and areas of improvement. But it's real, and that's, that's what it's like, that we, what it was like there. And we're just getting a bit of a flavor, just a bit of a flavor. Now, since I'd mentioned Corinth earlier, Rome, this was written from Corinth. Let's go over to Corinth for a moment. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians here. And I am just picking out a few different places. You could do the same for a bit of a, of a study, but I'm, I'm just going to pick out a couple places to try to pull out of the words on the page what the atmosphere would be like if we were to walk in and spend time with them. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak this, all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, but my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So, as you read, it goes on. He says, verse 12, I, I say this, that each of you says, well, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And then he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So let's put this into real terms. If you were to walk into the congregation, if you were then to spend time, if you were to be there week after week, after, during the week, perhaps, you spent time and you were having dinner, you were dip, with them different times. What do you think would be the words that would be, would be said? Because they would reflect this attitude. Oh, have you heard this sermon? This guy is the best. That was a great sermon. I can't remember what it was about, but it was awesome, you know, because I just love that guy, or I love that, that guy over here, or that guy. And, and, and in other words, it's not bad to be positive towards sermons, but what we find here is there was this almost like a spiritual, maybe idolatry or idol worship or hero worship of different teachers. So if you were there, what would happen is that would come up in conversation. What would you say? What would you say? How would you deal with it? What would you say about it? Because that reflected the spirit of the congregation. And he says, look, that sort of hero worship is, is tearing you apart as a congregation. And so 
that would be reflective. Now, if you, if you go to a few chapters later, to chapter 6, you see uh, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1, another element. So the first element would be, I'll say, contentions. And it was reflected in this division over heroes and, and uh, in the church as far as teachers. Another way that that contentiousness was reflected is here in chapter 6 and verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And you know this section is how, how there, were, there were issues, there were legal issues, there were business issues, there, there were uh, uh, elements of, of life, whether it might have to do with property, might have to do with work. Mr. Wakefield's course that he uh, did recently, it's really it was, uh, it's a, uh, a recapturing of the Bible studies that he did last year, Talk, speak to this. How do, the, the fact that we do have business transactions, whether it's, it's work or, or money, expectations that are built in, this, these are issues that can cause contentions. And, and he talks about how to avoid that, how to deal with that. Well, guess what? The church at Corinth was having exactly that. And so if you were to go there, what do you think would be conversations? Do you think that maybe there would be elements, people who were friends, people who were had positive feelings towards each other and others who didn't? Because did you not know? Let me tell you about that one over there. And last year what happened? And there would be conversations that would reflect this atmosphere. What was, what's the spirit? What was the spirit of the church at Corinth? Well, we're, we get just a little bit of a snapshot. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse, verse 20. We see that another element of the, of the atmosphere here was that of vanity. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Where is the wise, he says? Where is the scribe? He says, where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For the Jews request a sign, and and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says that to set up what comes next. Because what he was saying reflected some of the arguments and some of the puffed-upness, you might say, of those who were there, and he pops the bubble. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Whoa! You, 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 us? Well, we were having these very articulate, sophisticated debates and discussions about things that are really, really important. And you're saying that we're foolish? He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Wow, talk about taking the wind out of your sails. Now, let's reverse engineer that and think about what it would be like to be there. What would be the discussions? What conversations would there be? 
How easy would it be to become entangled in the contentiousness because of the vanity that was apparently present for Paul to have to say this. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You know, vanity prevents us from seeing our own glaring errors, doesn't it? And we see that here where Paul said, or he wrote rather, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And then he puts his finger on it. He says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. So he, he identifies it. I'm not making this up about vanity. He says there's vanity there. You're puffed up. So chapter 6 um, and, and well, we are, we talked about that already in terms of the, of the contentiousness. So we could pick on the church at Corinth more, but I think that's, that's enough for now. Because as you go through, you see some of these different, these different elements. Yet they were part of the body of Christ though, right? They were part of the church. So, so we're not saying these are evil people. These are just people who are called and who are struggling with life. If you were to go there, you would be in amongst their their problems and their challenges and what they were battling because that's real life. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Let's read about the Bereans. Ah, here we go. This is, this is good. You know, it, it's, it's really positive about them, and I think maybe because it's pretty short. I mean, you know, maybe, if it's been, maybe if there was more written, there might be some you know, downside or some elements that they were working on, some challenge areas. But we do read this anyway, Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, we read verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. If you would go into that congregation, certainly, let's, let, let's leave any negatives that are unmentioned off the table, but certainly you would go there, and the more time you would spend with them, the more you would become drawn in to their search of the scriptures, perhaps. And, and, and you would, you would experience that, you would enjoy that, you'd be excited by that, you would, if you went somewhere else, you'd talk about it, just like Paul was talking about the faith of the, of the church at Rome. This is something that was, was highlighted, and, and you would be part of that, you'd be lifted up by that, you'd be encouraged by that, you'd become all the wiser and have more understanding because you're part of that, right? That was the atmosphere, that's the spirit of the church at, at Berea, as it's mentioned here. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here, Thessalonica was mentioned, so let's let's look at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonica chapter 3. And, I mean, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse uh, verse 1. Therefore, and see if you can identify the, the, the trait that I'm speaking to here that's being described he says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, verse 4, in we, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. 
Here we go, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desire to see us, as we also to see you, Therefore, brethren, in all our afflictions and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What, what a nice thing to have said about you as a congregation. That, for Paul to say, we're, I was, when I heard about your state and how you were doing, I was so encouraged because I, I knew that your, your faith was strong. Okay, that's his comment. Now, if you were to go to that congregation, what, what would it be like? Well, certainly that would be one of the elements that would be very present. And you'd experience, would encourage you like it encouraged Paul. Would encourage me. Like Paul, when I read Paul's words, I think, wow, that, what a wonderful thing to be said and a wonderful atmosphere to experience in the congregation there at Thessalonica. We see just a page over in chapter 4. And verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all, in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So we see that, that it was very positive in terms of the love they showed to one another. This is, it was a very positive thing. Verse 11, pops the bubble a little bit because he says, verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work out your, your uh, verse, work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Well, nothing like a little bit of a mind your own business encouragement to, you know, put things in a little bit of perspective. Because again, any congregation is not it's not single-faceted. It's a mixture of different elements that combine to create the atmosphere, the spirit of that, of that congregation. If you go across the page or a couple pages later to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, verse 6, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So there was a disorderly element among them that had to be dealt with, and he had to coach them. So if you were to, if you were there, you'd see that was an issue as well. At least over time, that became an issue that would be present if you visited that church and spent some time there, or that congregation. Let's go to let's go to um, Philippians. Philippians chapter two. We can see, um, well, even in chapter 1, we see uh, verse uh, verse 3, I thank my God, chapter 1 of Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, uh, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, a day of Jesus Christ. And 
going down a little bit further, you see verse 9, and, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. He says, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So it seemed like he was very positive toward them, and he, he talked about your fellowship in the gospel. And so there was, there was a positive, uh, positive words. There would be a positive atmosphere. He says in chapter 4, if you just flip over to chapter 4, he says, well, you, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter here, but, um, but let's say verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And, and so have this, this sense of, of their generosity that we can see uh, flashes of here. Yet, if you go to chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, verse Two verse. Um, let's begin in verse twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as my own presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure, and do all things without complaining and disputing. So we we see this little this little indicator, this little red light that goes on. Ah, that's part of the atmosphere, perhaps to some degree. Uh, complaining and disputing, and perhaps a bit of a bit of contention. Now, we could do the same thing, and I've got Ephesus and Colossae, and you can see different elements as we would go to them. But I think you get the point. As we go to the different churches and read carefully through the New Testament here, the the epistles of Paul in particular, we see each church certainly with the common thread of God's Spirit, and and in that regard. The same, just like it would be for us if we go to different churches throughout the United States and, and, and the world. And you were to go, if you could somehow do a, have a time machine and roll back in time and go to different congregations back in time, you would see God's Spirit at work of those who He's called, and we would spirit, see the commonalities. But you would also see a different flavor for different, different congregations, a different atmosphere. And that's borne out by what I've been talking about here as we've been going by through each one. We notice those differences. And again, I, I, I want to reiterate, these are real people in real congregations, living real lives, with real problems, with real difficulties, real challenges. And, and as a result, when God put them together as a congregation, as a group, it was a group that developed a particular atmosphere, a flavor, a, a, a spirit, you might say. Now, let's take that thought just a step further. If you were to visit the different congregations today, and you were to spend more time, as I go back to the beginning, what would you experience? Much the same thing. Now, there might be different accents. If you were, for example, in Boston, or if you were in South Georgia, you would notice very clearly that people are different simply by the accent. If you were went to California, or you went to Minnesota, or you went to wherever it might be, you'd, you'd see the different accents, but again, you would see different elements of a congregation. And this is something per, perhaps maybe is more on my mind because of being in different congregations over the years, uh, spending that time where in the morning, for example, 
I might be, my family and I, we might be over in Worcester for the morning service. And that group has a certain atmosphere. And then the afternoon, we might be down in Pawtucket. Or we might be up in, in, uh, in, in Bangor. We might be uh, down to the west or back in Albany. And, and so, or you might be, next week, we might be in Manhattan. And then in the afternoon, it might be down in South Jersey. A very different different congregations in terms of just a different culture, different way of speaking, and different, just a different atmosphere. And, and we could try to identify it, try to put names on it, try to put characteristics on it, um, but, but it, it is for real. It is for real. Now, before we go any further, let's then ask some simple questions with that in mind. Where am I going with this? Why is this important? Why, how does it get this way? What are we to do about it? What are we to think about it for ourselves? So let's ask some simple questions. Let's just start with, how does it get this way? Whatever way it is, how does it get that way? Well, number one, number one, the outside atmosphere. I'm going to call it just the outside atmosphere. Now, the one that I think is uh, we're familiar with, quite familiar with, is the church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea. So, for example, let me just read you, just to re-familiarize you a little bit with what Laodicea was like. And I use that because we we know some of the characteristics of Laodicea. We read about them in in, in Revelation chapter 3, don't we? So, with that in mind, knowing those characteristics, just go ahead and get them in your mind, you know what they are, okay? Now we read some of the description of the, the outside atmosphere. Laodicea. Uh, let's see, in ancient times there were at least six cities called Laodicea, and the one in Revelation was Laodicea on the Lycus to distinguish it from the others. Its, important, what, its importance was due entirely to its position. The road from Ephesus to the east and to Syria was the most important in Asia. It began at the coast of Ephesus, and it had to find a way to climb up to the central plateau 8,500 feet up. It set out along the valley of the river Meander until it reached what were known as the gates of Phrygia. Beyond this point lay a broad valley where Lydia, Phrygia, and Coria met. The Meander entered that valley by a narrow, precipitous gorge through which no road could pass. The road, therefore, detoured through the Lycus Valley, and in that valley Laodicea stood. It was literally astride the great road to the east that went straight through Laodicea, entering by the Ephesian Gate, and leaving by the Syrian gate. That in itself would have been enough to make Laodicea one of the great commercial and strategic centers of the ancient world. Um, as Ramsey says, it only needed peace to make Laodicea a great commercial and financial center. That peace came with the dominion of Rome. When the Roman peace gave it its opportunity, it became, as Pliny called it, a most distinguished city. Now, this article has just a brief list of characteristics that left their mark on them as a congregation. Number one, it was a great banking and financial center. And I'm not going to go into all the, the details uh, supporting that, I'll just mention some of the points. <clears throat> Number two, it was a great center of clothing manufacture. Number three, it was a considerable medical center. And number four, it was an area where there was a very large Jewish population. So just think about that in terms of Laodicea. And if you were visiting the church in Laodicea for an extended period of time, what would you experience? Well, would, would, the, would the culture around it, would the, the way the city 
functioned and the, the sophistication, the education, the ways of thinking of the city around have any impact on the church, on the individuals in the congregation? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Of course it does, because that's reality. When we're soaked in a particular culture, we have a hard time not reflecting those elements of the culture. So how does any congregation get the way it is? The outside around it, the outside environment. Let me just look at a, another, uh, give you another example, and that is Corinth. Corinth. Now, Corinth was the capital of the Roman province Achaia, and it was, it was a prosperous city, but it was also known for its immorality. And there's debate on how immoral it was and, and whether there were a thousand temple prostitutes or less and all these type of things. I mean, there, there's, there is debate about the debauchery, but, but it was certainly within the congregation itself we see immoral, sexual immorality as a problem, as, as something that was they turn a blind eye to, right? So does the, and I, I don't want to take a lot more time with it, but when we read into the atmosphere in Corinth, so that at least uh, we, you can read in some places that, that the Nate to Corinthianize actually was, it, it, uh, it actually came to mean to, to, to be full of debauchery or whoredom or, or, and some say, well, it was just, uh, it, the, the, the people of Athens used it to, um, to try to ridicule Corinth and it wasn't as bad as some say it is. Regardless, we, as you, when you do study into what Corinth was about, you see that it was, it was a place of immorality, certainly, that influenced the, uh, the congregation there. And uh, so the outside atmosphere is, uh, I think, is important. I'll just list one more example for you to consider, and that is Jerusalem. Think about all the political contention that existed in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. During the time of Christ, we know there were, there were literally dozens of parties who, who were vying for power. And some were on one side of the spectrum, were zealots. Some were... Uh, felt that they should, they should be able to cooperate with the authorities and everything in between. And so uh, the time of Christ and thereafter, up until Rome's destruction, was a hotbed of political distress and, and divisiveness. And now you had the church beginning, and now we, they were told they were to allow Gentiles to actually become part of the congregation. What impact did that have? How were Gentiles treated? How, what was it like to be a member, a fly on the wall member, standing there and looking around and watching the atmosphere, watching everything that happened? What would it have been like? Do you think that the people would have been impervious to the culture around them and to the, what was flying around them? Are we? So, the outside atmosphere certainly is, is part of how any congregation takes on a certain atmosphere or, or attitude. Number two, the raw material. Number two, the raw material. In other words, who God calls into any given congregation has an impact on the spirit and and attitude of that congregation. Let's go to Acts chapter 18. I want to show you what I mean. Acts chapter 18. Here, we're in Corinth now. After these things, verse 1 
Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So we see that he stayed with them, and it appears that they, they were strong. Everything we learn about them was that they were strong pillars in that congregation. And they'd come from, uh, from Rome to Corinth. Okay? Now, my point here is that, is that who God calls and into a given congregation has an impact. And I'd just like you to consider the fact that these were strong individuals. And we see then that, um, across the page in verse 18, that, uh, let's, let's, let me read what I'm talking about here, that they left. Here they left Corinth. Verse 1, or verse 18 rather. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and, and it goes on. But I just want to point out that they were with him as he left Corinth. And I'm posing the question, do you think it would have had an impact on the church at Corinth when Priscilla and Aquila were not there? My, my premise is it, it, it would have because of, because of them and who they were and uh, that they, they, had, they, were, they, were, they were pillars. Now, let's just go in chapter 18, verse 8, and I want to add to that here, to that thought. Verse 8, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So Crispus is a ruler of the synagogue, and you have to ask how many people came along with him? How many people did God work with because God was working with him? And uh, later, uh, we, we see, interestingly though, that Corinth had problems because of a weakness for personalities. So just as food for thought, because God certainly called Crispus, but were some of the other people who came along with him not as dedicated, but were following him. And that atmosphere began to, was part of the church because, because they were, they were simply following him. And I, I pose this because I've seen this happen, where sometimes you have a strong individual and maybe other family members come along, but in time it shows that the, Time shows that they're that they're not as dedicated, or they're not uh, truly with the church, and God's not truly calling them. Uh, and it takes time for that to be borne out. But meanwhile, the atmosphere of that congregation is reflective of those individuals, and, and sometimes perhaps even their growing doubts or their attitude or their lack of dedication. Um, and so I'm we're just I'm trying to peel back the layers of what it would been, have been like to be here and think about Crispus, and think about Aquila and Priscilla and the, the impact and what was happening, the dynamics of that congregation. Because we see later, even as Paul talks in Ephesians chapter, or rather Acts chapter 20, how individuals matter. Individuals do have an impact on the whole. Paul even warns the elders of Ephesus about this very thing in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, as he's, as he's taking his leave and saying his goodbyes, he says to you, he says to them in verse 
28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So people matter. Individuals matter. Individuals have an impact on on any given congregation. Did you ever notice how one person can walk into a room and the whole atmosphere can change? Sometimes people smile and and they brighten up and sometimes they leave. It just depends. Sometimes they clam up because of their experience with this person. They don't want to say anything. Or people get edgy. People are on edge because of this individual their experience with this individual. People matter. And people in a con- congregation matter. And, and they count. Now, let's go to second, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'll mention a third, third way that an atmosphere develops. Of any given congregation. And that is the experiences that the congregation goes through. Again, the experiences that the congregation goes through. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll show you what I mean by what we see here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse, verse, verse 3. He said, I'm breaking into the thought here about uh, Paul uh, talking to them about this uh, incident that they happened, that happened earlier, where he was pretty, he came down pretty hard on them for not dealing with this person who, who was really committing this out, outrageous act, should have been disfellowship, should have been removed, and he came down pretty hard on them, right? Remember the occasion we read in, in, in the first letter that he wrote to the church here. So now, This is a little while later, and he says, And I wrote this very thing, verse 3, to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, I have to say, and I, when I read this, I always just, I, I, I have to start sort of chuckling to myself. What would it have been like to be in the church at Corinth at this time and get this letter? Now, I have to say, my reaction would have been, what? You just told us that we weren't being tough enough and strong enough, and now you're saying we ought to be more forgiving. Which one is it? Okay. Now, what I'm saying is, do you think that they were a little bit burned, and maybe they were, as a congregation, because of what they went through, this scolding by by Paul about how they weren't being tough enough, do you think that maybe it influenced them as a congregation, and they were a little bit... Now, careful about uh, those who were, you know, walking on the edge, and they were a little hardened, perhaps. Do, do you think it would have had an impact? 
I would, I would guess so. Such that he's having to say, well, look, maybe you're, maybe you're a little bit too hard now. You need to, you need to soften up a little bit. You need to be forgiving. And so my point is, is that the experience a congregation, a group goes through, it, it does have an impact. It changes them. Now, let's, let's bring it closer to home. <clears throat> For those of you who went through the, the demise, the disintegration of the Worldwide Church of God and the, the apostasy that set in, were you impacted by that? Were you, do you feel that it took you a, a while to get past the hurts from people who turned their back on you, from ministers who didn't uphold the truth? Do you think, did it, did it have an impact on you at all? Did it have an impact on people? I, I know because every time that we, we'd have somebody new come into the church, whether in global or more recently in living days, who literally just has come along with us but was part of that time, they're going through a process of, of overcoming a certain amount of sometimes bitterness, sometimes cynicism, sometimes anger, sometimes hurt, distrust. Why? It's because of what they went through. That happens to us as individuals. We can't help that. And congregations, the same thing can happen. So over the last couple of years, do you think that congregations who have had a number of members in that congregation turn their back and walk away and follow rebels, follow rebellious actions, and, and so on, do you think that that has impacted the congregation? Of course it has. Of course it has. Now, when we go through things as a congregation, we, 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 it actually, it makes an impact on us. <clears throat> when congregations have a, have a pastor who leaves, or when congregations, especially smaller congregations, have a death or some type of a tragedy, does it have an impact on that congregation? Of course it does, brethren. And so what I'm saying is that is that individuals and then congregations also are shaped by the experiences through which they go. That, that's just a, that's a reality. And so we see that's part of what makes up the dynamics of the, of the atmosphere of a congregation. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. One last one, and I'll just mention this quickly, and then we'll move, keep moving forward, and that is the leadership has an impact. The leadership has an impact on any given congregation. Acts chapter 19. And I'm just going to point you to this chapter because as you go through the chapter, you see how the the leaders, and I I don't want to read the whole thing, but verses 1 through 20, you can see that the dedication of the leaders in this in this. uh, this section here, this selection, it has an impact on people such that, I'm going to read the last verse, verse 20, and you can put the section in your notes. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Why? Because you see how, verse 6, for example, Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. It says, they, verse 8, they went, he went to the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So you, you, you see, and there are many examples, I just picked out one, that 
when leaders are bold, we see this in the Old Testament with Hezekiah and with Josiah. When they were bold, the, the nation prospered. And you see there's a certain revival in the nation of dedication to put away the false idols, uh, the false gods and the idols, I should say. But how did it start? It started because you had a leader who was who was bold and strong. Leaders make a difference. Leaders make a difference in congregations, just like they do in nations, just like they do in the work as we see here. Okay, next discussion. The next question then is, can it change? Can it change? How does it get that way? Now, how can it change? The answer is yes. Certainly yes. Through, number one, addition. It changes through addition. Acts chapter 9. I'll just give you a couple examples of this. And you'll see where I'm going right away when you, when you glance at chapter 9. Because here you read of the calling of Paul. You see, verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. This is when he was struck down. And with his, his calling then, you see a great impact on congregations, as we've seen a little to a, a small degree in some of the descriptions I've given. Uh, so I'm, I'm using this as an example as people do make a difference Broadly speaking with Paul, and I talked about Priscilla and Aquila, um, you could look at Apollos. Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Apollos had an impact on those around him. So it can change by addition. When God, God calls someone into a congregation, I certainly have seen it. Uh, sometimes it's an you know, individual that, uh, that, that, that comes in, God calls them, and they're in, enthusiastic, they're energetic, they're dedicated, they've got an energy, they've, they've got a, a, a passion to learn more about God's way, and they have an impact on the congregation. Or somebody moves from another area, that is, that is, is solid, and that is, um, is, is wise, and that is able to, to stabilize the congregation simply just by being who they are. And, and it has an impact. So you, we could make a whole study on that, um, but I'll, I'll leave it for point number one. Point number two is by subtraction. By subtraction. The atmosphere of a congregation can change by subtraction. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. <clears throat> but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And it goes on and, and, and talks about how uh, they were with them and they, they worked. And whereas verse 11, he says, I, we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner and not working at all, but are busybodies. Uh, now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness. And eat their own bread. Um, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. But he says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may ashamed, be ashamed. In other words, this is the, the process of subtraction. When someone who is uh, disruptive, when someone is divisive, is removed from the congregation, the congregation then prospers. The atmosphere in the congregation is improved. And so it's simple math. By addition or sub- subtraction, things can change. Ephesians chapter 4, number th- point number 3, or, or way number 3, that the atmosphere can change is through gradual maturation. 
And that can be for better. It can be for worse. But let's just uh, highlight for better first. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. We read how he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the per- a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You read here how the body is knit together and fit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working. But we're reading here about a, a process of the equipping of the saints, a maturing process that happens over time. And that certainly is... It speaks to how, how a congregation can change as it matures and becomes more experienced at, at implementing, at living by the ways of God and has dealt with maybe some of those difficult experiences or has dealt with those who were divisive and then have left and is able to now be more mature and solid and stable. So sometimes time and maturation can change the atmosphere. Now, I say for the worse because we read, in, for example, in Revelation chapter 2 about, the, about the, the Ephesian, we say the Ephesian era of the church at Ephesus, that over time we see it was a, instead of maturing, it was a disintegrating in terms of having the love and the dedication that they, they should have. So time doesn't always improve, but it, but it can improve. And so time is a, is a factor as well. Now, With that in mind, then, let's take the next step, which is the obvious step, and that is, how about us as a congregation, then? How about us as a congregation? If you were to come to this congregation today for the first time, and then over the next few weeks and months get to really know us as a congregation here, so all of us together, not not just as a casual visitor passing through, um, we always put on our best faces for guests, don't we? But but as as someone who would be here for weeks and months, then after a year went by, had to step back, how would that person characterize the atmosphere or the prevailing spirit or the attitude of our congregation? What words would they use? Would they use words like wise and sound-minded, uh, encouraging, faithful, loving, hospitable, or would less flattering words come to mind? And, and that's, that's the challenge that we have to ponder, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our challenge. Now, one more step to take. <clears throat> what is the atmosphere then as we have, because we've been, we're building towards a, a point and, and we'll get there before all is said and done. But what is the atmosphere then when we gather together as, I'll say, the family weekend, where we're a collection of congregations? Because there's an atmosphere there, isn't there? Because now you have, what, five or six different congregations within an area. Or you might say for the Feast of Tabernacles, where there's an area, there's five, six, seven, eight congregations, or however many all gathered together. What is the atmosphere of, of a congregation, of a group of congregations like that? Because we're working towards ultimately the body as a whole, as you can see. Well, I want to show you something, and um, I pardon me for uh, being a little bit personal, but...
But I want to show you something, and it's, it's meaningful to me because it so fundamentally reflects our desire to be, to be bound together as a congregation, but even as a, a group of congregations when we're together with other, other congregations, and ultimately the church as a whole. So, pardon me for being personal, and um, hope I don't get emotional here, but um, this, is, this is something that was uh, given to my family as we, I don't know if I can, if I can show it to you, given to my family as we left the Northeast and the, the congregations that we had up there. Up there. Let's see here. I think I have it upside down. It's hard to tell, but this is a... Let's see if I can hold it up here. Okay. Okay. Now, you, it probably just looks like a blur of colors up there. But if you could look closely, what you'd see is every single one of these squares is a picture of either a person or a family or an activity or a Feast of Tabernacles, a family weekend shot. Every single one of these is a, is a picture, and it's all put together, and it's, it, it's actually put together to look like the state of New York. And so uh, if you hold it up, and you can look at, literally take a magnifying glass to every picture and see just a snapshot of, of the area. Now, why it's so meaningful to me is because that is... That is what we're supposed to be. Not that there's perfection in the Northeast, but that's, it, it really, it reflects what we're supposed to be, a tapestry that's woven together of, of people who all fit together when, at the, when all is said and done to create a, a beautiful picture, the state of New York. Well, it could be other pictures as well, but I, but you understand what I'm talking about in that case. And, you know, in a way, I, I guess what brings this to mind, too, is, is here we have the Charlotte photo album. Mr. Strain was talking about it. We have an opportunity to take our picture and put it in that album. It's, it's like this. It's not, a, it's not a directory. This isn't a directory. This is, this is the lives of people all, all together, you see. And, and that, that photo album is, is people. That's real people who are all together. It's a tapestry in a way. It's just a visual tapestry of the congregation here. And it's a beautiful thing. And the, and the thing about it is, if we say, well, ah, I don't have time for it. I don't want to do that. It's not about what we want to do. It's we do it because we're supposed to. We have to. We should. We should take the responsibility to be bound to one another. You know, being part of the body of Christ is not about what we want to do. What we want to do, I mean, you think about it, as husbands and wives, uh, husbands, uh, this may be a surprise for you ladies, but your husbands don't always want to love you, okay? What they want to do is perhaps, if you have maybe a a little honey-do list that you have for them tomorrow, what they want to do is watch the football game, okay? Not lay down their life for you in love and hang that picture on the wall or whatever it might be. What they want to do is sit on the back porch and have a cup of coffee and put their feet up. You can tell I'm getting older as the things I think about what we would want to do. Um, What they want to do may be very different from what they're going to do because they know they should love you and they have to love you because they're commanded to. Is that a bad thing? No, we're commanded by God to love our wives. And ladies, I'm sorry to spill the beans on this, but gentlemen, your wives don't always want to submit to you. 
to your leadership. Sometimes they want to say, no, I want to do it this way to your crazy cockamamie idea. Okay? Well, if that's what they want to do and say, you're nuts, I don't think that's a great idea, but what they do is say, okay, I'll give that a try <laughs> instead. Because that's what they're, that's what we, they should do, what they're supposed to do. Why am I bringing this in? It's because we create an atmosphere by having the desire, not always the want, but recognizing that we have an obligation. We are commanded by God to care about binding ourselves one to another. So when it comes to whether it's being here at Sabbath services together, or when it's coming to an activity, whether it's putting our picture in a photo album, or whether it's going to coming to a spokesman's club, or whether it's coming to a spokesman club, I'm going to make, make sure I get that clear, and or coming to a family weekend, brethren, we don't all necessarily do these different things where we're We're together because we want to. Because sometimes we don't want to. We want to do something else. But because we know that the atmosphere in our congregation is going to be determined by our dedication to God and to the church, to each other, so that we supersede what we want to do with what we should do. So we... We come together. We spend the time together, whether it be in one activity or another. These are designated times that we say, let's do this together. We, 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 we go out of our comfort zone to do that. Because when we stop going out of our comfort zone, when any of these congregations began to stop going out of their comfort zone and instead started doing what they wanted to do, what happened? They began to disintegrate. They began to pull apart. So... The atmosphere of the church as a whole, as the body as a whole, is impacted by starting with us, by us. What are we? We're the raw material. What kind of raw material are we? What kind of experiences have we gone through? And how do we, how do we use them? How do we learn from them so they make us stronger, not bitter or cynical? But they make us stronger. So we as an individual, we as a family, I didn't talk about that, but think about all these points in regard to a family and how a family atmosphere is created. Because that is a reality. Every family has a certain atmosphere. And all the points that I've gone through actually bear on that family atmosphere as well. So what is our family atmosphere? What is our atmosphere as a congregation? What would people say who spend time who don't know us? And then what is our atmosphere as we get congregations together, multiple congregations? How do we treat each other? How do we act? And then the next question would have to be then, what is the spirit of us as a body, as a whole, as, a, as, as followers of Christ, as the church of God? Because one thing leads to another, doesn't it? And that's something that God sees, you know. I, I look at this, and I, I just see, you know, all kinds of people, and I see all experiences. I can only imagine what God sees when he looks down, and he sees all of us. And, and, and what, he, what he desires from the picture that he sees when he sees all of us. How he wants us to be bound together, and to care about each other, to, to decide to care about each other to decide to obey him, to love one another, even if we don't feel like it, if we don't feel like being together, if we don't feel like taking the time. 
No, he must, when we, when we do, he must just savor that. He must just enjoy that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think that's a great place to end because <clears throat> when we come back to it, as we began, I hope that just challenge you to think about the reality of us as a congregation and how it's it's a reality that goes back through time. Every congregation that God has ever built together and that has also struggled with trying to be the the congregation that God desires for, for them, it's the same battle that we face, the same challenge we face, it's not a new challenge, but, but all together across from here, across a few congregations to the United States and the world, and then back through time, other congregations back through time, there's this tapestry of all these individuals as congregations and then as a whole body of Christ that he's talking about right here. And what a beautiful thing. As the body is one, verse 12, and has many members, all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, and so also is Christ. He says, verse 20, But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, these members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Because we care about each other. And we want to be bound to each other. As time goes by, we recognize that we should. It becomes, habitually, it becomes our want as we practice that obedience. And he says, verse 26, or verse 27 rather, Now you are the body of Christ and Members individually. So we're members, we're families, we're congregations, we're congregations that gather together and we're the body as a whole at this time and place and a body of a whole as a whole going back through time and going forward through time until Christ's return. What a wonderful thing to be, to be part of that body as described. And as an addendum, just imagine this. When we enter into God's family as spirit beings, imagine what that will be like. Imagine the atmosphere, the, 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 the environment, the, the way of thinking, the, the spirit of that time. When we're filled with God's Holy Spirit, not only filled, but actually are changed into spirit beings. Imagine the atmosphere. Imagine what that will be like. And as we do, that should inspire us as to how we treat each other, how we act towards each other, how we dedicate ourselves to to spending time with each other and caring about each other today.